Hi and welcome to the Sunday Lunch Project podcast for the 30th of April 2020. This is your host, Nigel Creaser. And in this month's interview, we once again are joined by Dr. Karen Thompson. She's the academic PM today. And we're going to delve into a bit of her background. But first, a word from our sponsors. So as seems to be the theme this month, we've got no sponsor. Uh, but what I am doing is turning over this slot uh, to a project called Folding at Home. Folding at Home, or F-A-H, or F-A-T-H, um, is a distributed computing project for simulating protein dynamics, including the process of protein folding and the movements of proteins implicated in a variety of diseases. It's uh, citizen scientists who volunteer the, to run simulations of protein dynamics on their computers, does it in your spare time, um, and then that information is used by um, scientists to understand and try and work out new ways of treatments. And one of the um, proteins that they're analysing is the COVID-19 uh, protein, so you can turn it over to specifically that, and that's why I kind of did it. My company I work for, Capgemini, had a big... Um, uh, group of people trying to do that and there's lots of organizations doing it and trying to get into the the top list of things so i've i've um devoted i've got four pcs at my house they're extra processing um to do it um and uh been uh, keeping an eye on it every so often i've done a similar thing with seti the search for extraterrestrial intelligence many years ago where they um are analyzing the radio signals that are coming from outer space to see if there's um, intelligent life. Uh, so it's a concept I've always found interesting. Um, if you do have uh, extra IT um, or extra capacity um, at home, I do urge you to go along. Um, maybe it'll help accelerate um, some of the, the treatments that we all need for COVID-19. So pop along to uh, HTTPS folding at home, all one word, with the athome.org and get yourself going with it. Uh, just to say, if you are interested in sponsoring the show or you know someone who might be interested in sponsoring the show, please get them to send an email to sundaylunchpmpod at nigelcreaser.com. So in the news today, um, it's been another hectic month in the office, um, but broken up by a little bit of time off over Easter, um, which I, actually when I got part way through it, I realized I had felt tired and, and kind of strung out with all the, um, the things going on in the world and uh, with the busyness in the office. But um, I'd not realized how, how tired I was until I kind of had a little bit of downtime. Uh, we didn't go very far, as as uh, you could imagine. Uh, a few trips out on the bikes, um, uh, on, only riding from home, not driving anywhere. Um, we uh, have a folding camper that we also set up in our garden um, for uh, myself and the, my two daughters and wife. We spent an evening in there, though it didn't go quite to plan as at midnight someone decided to head back in the house and then five o'clock someone did. So I ended up, it was just me and the cat listening to the uh, morning um, bird song um, 
at 5am or whatever time it was. Um, the dawn chorus was the word I was looking for. So yeah, that was an interesting one. Um, me and my little one built a, monop- uh, a chess set um, using beer caps um, as the as the pieces and and old pizza box um, in, as the the board and made a start on building a um, uh, customized Marvel Universe Monopoly chess set, which we um, we were partway through and we're continuing on with that. Um, and then I had another day off earlier this week because it was my uh, to celebrate my 51st birthday and a fairly chilled out day with the family though the, the kids were doing their homeschooling and I was uh, kind of pottering around not doing a great deal popped out on the bike and that was it talking of that during during our lo- the lockdown we have been um, going through the uh, and re-watching the Marvel Cinematic Universe films and uh, this weekend, Friday, we will be rewatching Endgame, so that's going to be um, good. And on the subject of lockdown, I don't, and again, I don't know how people are feeling. Um, obviously, it's extending uh, for a fair time. I think we've got a little way to go yet. Um, we've had our first couple of Zoom parties, which we we thought was going to be a, a, an hour or so chatting with some friends, and it was seemed to last till into the early hours because everyone had a bottle or a, or a pint in front of them. So that worked out quite interestingly. Um, so I think more use of that is going to get on. Um, more tech support is happening. Um, I put in a, uh, a Facebook portal into my mother-in-law's house so we can, she can see the, uh, the family and uh, we can see her and see how she's getting on. So uh, no doubt uh, things will come up with that. Um, and I think, Work-wise, again, it's quite difficult. It seems full-on because you know, even when you're taking downtime, you tend to be sat at a computer. In my role, you do, um, and I'm very—I'm uh, jealous, whilst not jealous of people who have um, are not in a position where they're having to work. There's benefits and disadvantages. Uh, unfortunately, I'm not um, one of the people who are having to to work right on the front line of any roles, um, but it does still feel like a hard time and I think in every way I saw I saw a really a really good illustration um that around some commentary around we're all in this together and, and it's absolutely true but we're not in the same boat uh, was the point that was made and it really made me start thinking about it is that we've got some of some people are in we're all in the same storm is kind of how it put across but we're all in our own little boats and each of our own little boats have got their own little nuances um, if you're a frontline worker, it's much, um, much different to someone who, um, is, uh, doing what I'm doing, which is having to work at home or then people who are furloughed and not being able to work and struggling with, with money or people who are furloughed and not struggling with money because they're actually working out, they're better off. Um, so there's lots of different variations. So it made me catch myself on, on, on making my assumptions. So, Maybe something that everyone, I thought I'd share that because I thought it was useful. Um, that uh, while some people might be getting the benefits of some parts of this or the downsides, there's, there's flip sides to both. And, and well, writing-wise, um, that's really taken a back burner this last couple of months. I, I just not found the 
um, the the energy to tackle it um, and the the emotional energy, and I think is where it is because it's being utilised um, everywhere else. But I keep trying to think, right, I'll get back into it, but I will. Fingers crossed, um, I'll find the find the energy to do it soon, and then I can bore you all with updates on that. Um, podcast interviews, um, they had started to slow down, but I've had a week uh, of, of interviews in the last um, week and a bit um, with varying uh, different subjects. I've got two of the Saturday brunch uh, episodes in the bag, so those are ready for next week. Next month will be Jonathan Norman, who I'm talking to him about major projects and the Major Projects Hub, which is um, something that interests me because... Um, major projects and scale and size and complexity of projects is it varies so much in the industry and then the following week i talked to a gentleman called simon dutton who is a program and um, planning um guru really in pmo um, but he also does um lego serious play so we'll be talking about that um which again is an, a subject that i find very fascinating on on using different tools to um to manage facilitation of meetings, etc. So those two are in the back. I've also got five people committed to the Sunday lunch interviews, um, two of which I've got slots booked in. So if I get the other three booked in as well, that's taking us um, through to to, to to the autumn, really, with the, the end of the month interviews, which will be great. Um, and then just fill in with some of the others. Uh, as I always say, if you've got someone who... Um, is interested has an interesting take on project management or um, a subject that might be interesting to project managers get them to ping me a message um, or you ping me a message at uh, Sunday lunch pm pod at nigelcreaser.com so um, well I'll, I'll leave you uh, to get on and have a listen to the interview with Karen and I will come back and annoy you later Thanks very much. Right, so today I'd like to welcome Dr. Karen Thompson to the Sunday Lunch Project podcast. Karen is an experienced practitioner turned innovative academic. She's passionate about transforming project management practice and education through research that explores the creative, ethical and human dimensions of project. At Bournemouth University, she leads the MSc, Organisational Project Management and Undergraduate Units in Project Management. And in 2017, Karen won the Herbert Walton Award from the APM for the relevance to her to practice of her research on social media in project management. And just last year, she received the Teaching Excellence Award at the inaugural PMI UK Awards. Her current research includes the application of responsible project management in a context such as refugee camps and the development of local action to achieve net zero targets for greenhouse gas emissions. Welcome to the show, Karen. Thank you very much, Nigel. Thank you for inviting me back. <laughs> yes, you weren't too badly behaved last time, so I thought I'd invite <laughs> you back. <laughs> so, as you know, I structure this. I've got a set of questions of, of, of uh, the standard set of questions that I go through. Um, so, starting thing, where are you from? Where were you born? 
Well, technically I'm a Cockney, which actually means I was born within the sound of Bow Bells. Um, but I've never lived in East London. I was born in Guy's Hospital in London. Um, okay. Lived in Streatham for the first 18 months. And then we moved out to actually a place called Lower Morden. But it was sort of at the end of the Northern Line. And I sort of grew up in that outer London area, um, moving to Croydon when I was about 10 years old, I think, that area. Oh, wow. And much later in my career, managed to move to Dorset. Ah, right. And is that where you are now? In Dorset? Indeed, yes. At the moment, um, I'm actually talking to, to you from home, and that is just outside Ringwood on the edge of the New Forest. Oh, beautiful place. Last year, me and my uh, family, we went, um, we come down to Portsmouth and went along the Jurassic Coast um, and took in all the all the, the sites along there, staying in... Um, uh, we went to Portsmouth, we stayed in Dorchester, and I'm can't for the life of me. Oh, Bournemouth as well, we stayed in as well. So, obviously, a beautiful part of the country. Lovely, lovely. Indeed, we holidayed down here for many years. In fact, from when I was about seven, hmm. um, probably right through until well, really, with only only probably missing a handful, well, not even a handful of years, um, right up until my parents actually retired down to a place just outside Christchurch. Oh, right. Um, and we used to rent holiday homes, normally with access onto the, the, the um, Christchurch Harbour, because we're very much into our sailing and kayaking. Um, hmm. So, yeah, so it was, and I still, sort of, although I've been here now for 25 years, it still feels as I'm on holiday. It's such a fantastic area to live. Um, Brilliant. See, sea is about 10 miles away and then we've got the forest yeah. so what more could i want <laughs> yeah the forest is great we, we went for a, a the pool, pool around there and um hunting the horses that the wild horses around there to go and see them and we were we ended up in a little village and uh had a, a bar a beer festival going on and in, in this little campsite in this this pub um and there was just like this crossroads and there was like loads of horses just wandering around free free as they mm. as, as they like and it was just astounding i really i thought I've, it's a place that i thought i'm going to come back there at some point and see what it's like and have more time <laughs> it was very much a, a multi-stop two days here two days there two days here but and so it's all oh, cool. right yes spend yes. a bit more time down there I think. yes i mean we've been down here tw living down here 25 years and holidaying down here before that for 25 or so and i'm sure we still haven't seen every part of the forest <laughs> no no i know you mean brilliant so you say we so what, what what's what's the family situation for you then um well, i've got two grown-up children i've got a daughter who's now 25 and a son who's 22 um was divorced about oh gosh where are we more than 10 years ago now um and i now have a partner and a dog or a newly arrived rescue dog that we've recently taken on um, and a cat <laughs> Brilliant. So you said that obviously you've moved down there in the last 25 years. Um, it sounded like you moved around in London and when you said more than there, I remember quite often I'll jump on the, um, uh, what they called, uh, on, on the, is it the Northern Line that you said? And, and I see that Morden is at the end of the Northern Line on the, um, or whichever line it is, I can never remember. Uh, and uh, never know where a, uh, always wondered whereabouts it is 
Um, I, I think it's pretty much due south of London. Um, right. I was, we lived literally right on the, also when, when we were at Morden, I said it was, so I'm getting mixed up, Croydon is due south of London, so I tend to think of that's where I sort of come from. Right. Morden isn't that far away. I see we moved when I was 10 years old. I think it was about 10 miles away from Croydon. Oh, right, I see. Um, oh, I'm just trying to work it out. It would be to the west of Croydon. Um, on the edge there because my right. mother used to teach at Wimbledon um, school when they first got married um, they lived in Streatham and then we moved so just a little bit further out of London um, so I said we, we sort of grew up in the outer London area um, even Morden it's at Morden I remember being very green and leafy we lived right by the edge of a, quite a big park um, so I always have this sort of impression of, although it was quite close to London, being quite a rural, um, yeah. or leafy area. Croydon, we actually lived literally right on the edge beyond our house. There were fields and um, a wood. And of course, the other way, uh, we had a short bus ride into East Croydon Station. But very much uh, sort of with one foot in the countryside and one foot in the town. And what was it like growing up there? What was Karen um, like? Was Karen well, always causing trouble? Oh gosh, I was a tomboy. I used to climb trees. I used to disappear off into the woods and climb trees with various friends. Um, yeah, it was. I think I think I often sort of just consider how different, especially children that are sort of growing up now. I mean, my two sort of come somewhere between that, but mm. we were so much freer than I think children are today. Um, yeah we would spend time outside wherever we were really. My grandparents lived at uh, Woking, which is also oh, yeah. was on the train line that I now take into London when I, when I do come in. Um, and they had a big, uh, my, father, my grandfather was a superintendent of a children's home. Right. So they had very big, big grounds that we used to um, have free reign to, to play around there when we were visiting. Um, I say Morden was quite a leafy part of South London and then Croydon um, we moved into a, a, a brand new house it was a, a big estate that was being built but literally our garden backed onto the fields and the the wood and I was often out there um, trying to remember what uh, what animals we had then certainly we would have had a dog then and I'm sure I would have taken that for walks yes I've always been a, a very sort of outdoorsy well we've been an outdoorsy type family mm. um, if you've seen my LinkedIn profile, that I think my the headline is outdoor enthusiasts because yeah. I felt that that probably best sums me up because that connection with nature I think um, is something that we've as a society tended to certainly those that live in towns and cities we've lost sight of that. Um, I sort of worry about the fact that we well many children these days don't know really where their food comes from. Well, it comes from the supermarket, but <laughs> where does it actually come from? Um, and I sort of worry that we are losing that connection. And there's been some really interesting research around that, that, um, again, they've made all sorts of correlations between creativity and being connected to nature and just the way our brains work and um, being connected to nature um, is just beneficial in so many ways. Yeah, it's stimulus, isn't it, I suppose? Yes, yeah. And, we, we, and we've always been, or I've always been very sporty, so it's been the outdoor sports as well. But even if you're not sporty, I think just getting outside into the natural environment and really connecting with nature is something that we all need to do so much more of. Yeah, and that's about it, man. Living where you live in Ringwood is ideal as well. It sounds perfect. So, yes, absolutely. Um, so we're right on the edge of the forest, and yeah. I've um, 
one of my favorite places to walk the dog. Um, I always like that because there's just so much sky. You sort of get up there, get on the hill and all you can see is sky and forest. And it does tend to put all the problems into proportion. You think I'm just this tiny little speck in the universe. <laughs> and you really get a sense of your sort of place in the grand scheme of things, which uh, can be quite, um, quite helpful sometimes to get things in perspective. Yeah, that's always useful to get those, uh, uh, the, to have that reset of how we fit into things, isn't it? And mm. I think obviously that, uh, and we'll probably talk about it later on, but it, and we talked about it last time about how the, your uh, your passion for the, the responsible project management obviously is is rooted in these this this love of outdoors and nature. Yes, indeed, I'm sure there was a, <laughs> a golden thread there connecting yeah, these things. <laughs> got to be, isn't there? Mm. So so think about that time when you were uh, walking a dog through the woods, through the fields as you say, climbing trees and getting up to mischief. What, what did you want to be then? Did you want to be a project manager then? Oh, gosh, no. Um, I think I might have mentioned this last time. I think the word um, project manager was first used in an academic paper the year I was born. Um, right. So certainly they weren't on the career. I mean, you, so you have to go back and really think about it's just staggering how society has changed literally the career options presented to girls at the time i was at school were nursing or teaching um <clears throat> and certainly i've never thought of myself as a nurse my mother was a teacher um, and my ambition when i was at school my more than not so much an ambition just an expectation i think because I was very sporty that I would become a PE teacher. Um, that was very much where I, where I saw myself um, going. Uh, yes, yeah, so I, I had some inspirational um, PE teachers. Um, one introduced us to trampolining, and certainly my school had one of the top teams in the area, and I was part of that, so trampolining was a big part of my uh, secondary school years. And my... One of the ladies that taught us, um, she was a long jumper. I think she went to, oh gosh, I wonder which Olympics it was. She went to one of the Olympics. <laughs> um, right. So she was certainly certainly inspirational. I got on really well with those those people. Um, and I, yes, I, I still think the, the people in your life have a big influence on them, your aspirations when you're young. They do, yeah. Yeah, I think they do. I think it's... it's it, it, I think the, the the difficulty and the, and is that and I and I see with my and maybe it's a bit different now is that over time the influences on your your um, uh, perspective of the world when uh, I know I was growing up there was a quite a small um, uh, group of role models you had some TV role models and things like that but yeah three channels and then eventually four and pr prior to that you've got the people you know parents <laughs> and uncles and, yes. and 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 friends of mum and dad and things like that and that's the that's the the circle of of what is possible has grown and grown and grown um over the years now and the, the opportunities for for and I think my old, my my daughters one of them's thirteen and one of them's eight and um, you look at the their role models out there, both good and bad because at the end of the day there's good mm -hmm. and bad role models but there, there's there's a, a plethora to choose from isn't there um, and certainly I think now there's much um, more opportunity with stronger women to be able to uh, or, or 
I don't think it's changed from how strong women were. It's more visibility of how strong and capable women are to be a role model for those, for my girls. Indeed. Yes. Yes. So visibility is changing, isn't it? Um, Absolutely. You, you, so, Obviously, you were thinking of doing PE. So, uh, did did you go into PE? What what was your education then? From when you finished secondary school and you world trampoline trampoline champion, or was that was that where you went? <laughs> well, the the highest level I got to with my trampolining was actually to represent the county, and oh, that that was that was my my goal because I wanted to go to Loughborough um, Teacher Training College that was the place to go to become a PE teacher Um, so I achieved that and I sort of reached I think I probably just about had the academic grades to do that yeah but I I took a radical decision at that time Um, I uh, thought if I'm going to stay in education I better have a year doing something else first so I don't remember how it came about, but I must have seen an, an advertisement for um, computer programmers. Now, my A-levels were in maths, further maths and economics. So I thought, okay, I can deal with numbers. Um, mm-hmm. So I did, did an aptitude test. It was actually for uh, Westminster City Council. Oh, right. So they were oh. a central London uh, council with quite a big IT department. And they were taking on, I think there were seven of us. Um, some of the others were graduates and some of the others just had A-levels like I did. Um, so my intention was very much just to do that for a year. But at that time, because um, it was very new, I mean, I'm not sure I even necessarily completely knew what a computer programmer was when I, <laughs> when I applied, but I passed the aptitude tests and was invited to join their training program. Um, and straight away we were working on, I mean, for, for those of your listeners who uh, know anything about um, IT systems, we were programming in COBOL, but uh. we were also still running tests using things like um, paper tape and paper cards. So uh, really going back into the early days of computing. Um, anyway, after a year, I, I think I actually got as far as handing my notice in. I had a place at university and was all set to leave. Um, But my manager at the time called me, a project manager, (laughs) called me in and said, well, there's a couple of other people I've worked with who were about to embark on a part-time degree in computing. It was one of the very first, um, sort of, it wasn't purely technical, it was applied computing in in the business world. so there were two two other people, um, one of whom had joined at the same time I had, and the other one was a slightly older person. Um, they were going to start this degree part-time, and he persuaded me that this might be a good opportunity for me. Um, given that by then I was probably earning as much as a fully qualified teacher, <laughs> um, it was probably slightly a no-brainer mm. um, to do that. And I went to the Polytechnic of Central London, as it was then, now Westminster University, um, and did a part-time degree in um, computing. So oh. that sort of really did change my life, I suppose. I never had the, the sort of full-time student experience, which, uh, well, do I regret that? Um, I'm not sure. Uh, I look at how students live these days and think, oh, I wouldn't want to live like that. Um, But I don't know. I don't know. I got married very young, first time around. um, So I was very young. So by the time I was 20, I had a mortgage and was married, which was for any of your listeners who are thinking about getting married at 20. Please don't. It's far too young. (laughs) You change far too much after that. Um, 
so yeah, so it, it sort of opened, opened things up and closed down some avenues, I guess. Um, but what I didn't realise at the time was at the London Borough of Westminster, we were working on not only programming in COBOL, but we were also working on database systems and we were working on online systems. And of course, being in that environment, I didn't realise that that actually was pretty innovative um, mm. and pretty far yeah. ahead at the time. We're talking, no, I won't say when we're talking, but <laughs> we've been revealing far too much. Well, you've, re <laughs> you've revealed a lot by saying COBOL and paper tape and card, haven't you? I so. have, I have, haven't I? Okay, we're talking the, um, right, the end, right at the end of the 70s and the early 80s. Right. I think I actually finished my degree in 82. Um, and in fact, actually, before I finished my degree, because I, I was um, tied to the council then, because they, they funded my um, education, which is something I am a, a passionate educator. Mm. And I'm also passionate about education should be available to those that want to be educated and want to engage with that. Um, and actually, I've not never had to pay for my education because my degree was funded by my employer. Um, of course, it was great. There were three of us, so we could collaborate. We could take time, obviously, with our manager's approval to use things we were doing at work as examples of work we were doing and um, able to build that into the coursework or perhaps vice versa, build the coursework into what we were doing at work. So it had so many synergies. Uh, yeah. It was a really great experience. Um, and so I was tied to local council, but I didn't have to stay at Westminster. And I think about a year before I finished the degree, I actually moved to the London Borough of Croydon. Um, and took my database and online experience there because they were just starting with databases and online. So I sort of, um, I always describe it as I, in my career, I mean, I moved both geographically, but also sort of back in time, back mm. to, um, <laughs> it was very, um, I think I took on a, I think my role was actually a database analyst um, because I was trained in sort of normalization and various data analysis techniques that were, very new at the time, and I was able to bring all that experience with me to Croydon um, and still comply with the terms of the, uh, the council funding my degree because I was still working in local government. Um, and I had to stay there, I think, two years after I finished my degree. Not that I was in any particular hurry to leave because um, what I loved about working in local government was the fact that there were so many different types of systems and different types of well, I used to think of them as businesses. Um, you had everything from financial systems, and I was working on some very big financial systems at uh, Westminster, certainly, um, through to you had planning application systems. And then when personal computers first um, really came into the business world, I was involved in using some of the techniques that we had around data analysis for designing systems to go on those. And we, with a colleague, we developed the first... I think the first in the UK, certainly, system for administration in schools. Um, so we had quite a sort of forward thinking, well, certainly the education department, we did a lot of work with them. And of course, computers were starting to be used in the classroom at that time. But in terms of administration, that's where we applied our, um, our systems thinking to developing systems for so the back office and schools, and I can remember having them, um, it might sound strange, but actually we developed a system for the crematorium, um, because that was always quite a, we made it, I think, quite a jolly experience, because um, we always love to go and, go and see the people there, and I think to sort of cope with their job, I think they used to have to, um, they, were, they were great fun to work with. But we, we, we developed lots of systems to go on personal computers, using some of the ideas that we had from them about how you design good systems for mainframes, which of course was slightly at odds with the way 
um, sort of PCs were developing. Mm. There was the, the home enthusiasts and that was sort of driving the, that area to some extent. But we were, I can remember doing an evaluation of different types of PVCs, trying to work out which one would be the best to sort of standardise on in the council. And of course, we were largely overtaken by, by events because the, the best technical PCs, of course, didn't end up dominating in the market. The market was ended up being dominated by IBM and the IBM lookalikes. Um, yeah. But uh, I can, yeah, sorry. Anyway, yes. Yeah, I remember. I, I just uh, down memory lane. It's okay. Down memory I just lane. remember having the dual dual floppy um, um, uh, IBM eighty sixes, uh, the two eighty sixes. I think they were. Oh yes, 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 um, indeed. You have a, a twin floppy drive um, on those. I remember having one of those that when they upgraded to what the one I can't remember the name of the one the, that they had that overtook the the. I think it was the one that had the disc drive was the two eighty six, and then. Uh, uh, and that was a brilliant. It had a disc, a, a physical disc drive in there rather than a removable disc drive. And, yes, uh, indeed. And indeed. some of the things that came through at that time were that it started. That's when IT started to really accelerate. I think because there was always yes, something new yes. coming out, wasn't there? Mm, yeah. So, yeah. working in the IT industry, um, you were obviously doing your data analysis. You're doing your implementation and. Um, and doing your your sort of design and, and build of the system. So, so how how did that move? How did you move into project management from from that role? Was it London Borough? Was it a conscious decision, or was it um, different to that? No, I'm not sure I've ever really had a career plan as such. Um, I tend to think of myself as an opportunist. I, <laughs> I mean. <laughs> I've sort of seized opportunities when they presented themselves. Um, so the connection, <laughs> the connection as I remember it, was well partly certainly when we were when we we're talking about designing these systems to go on PCs, we were clearly project leading those, or I was project leading those. So there was definitely a project leadership role going on. But the other side of this coin is that I was trained by, and again, I don't know whether any of your listeners will remember Learmouth and Burchett, who created um, the sort of forerunners of SSADM, which was Structured Systems Analysis and Design Method. Mm-hmm. They, I remember SSADM. Yeah, Learmouth and Burchett were the consultants that um, I think I think their product probably was called that, and then it got adopted by the government and standardised and so forth. Um, well, that, I also went on their one of their very early project management courses. Right. I probably spotted that and said, oh, that looks interesting. I'll, have, I'll persuade people to let me go on that, and I did. And it was what they were teaching on that project management course that um, I think they were the consultants that were very heavily involved in the development of Prompt, which became the government project management standard, and that in turn became Prince and then right. Prince Two. Um, I don't know how much of the history of those um, different methods you, you, you're aware of, or indeed your, your listeners are, but um, yeah. So, <laughs> and funnily enough, when we were sorting through some photographs, the, uh, looking through some boxes of photographs the other day, I came across a carrier bag that was a Learmouth and Burchett carrier plastic plastic i hate to say carry a bag i thought oh i wonder, wonder how many of those there are left in the world <laughs> uh, you need to get a, a, get that framed or get a photo of that up on facebook yeah get, it, get yes, a photo i bet if you get a photo up on linkedin and ask how many other people have got those i bet there'll be a couple yes, more. Or, yes. or if or there'll certainly be some people who remember them 
Indeed, indeed. So I'm not sure, I don't think I've actually ever had a job where I've, my actual job title has been project manager. At, um, I think I was probably called a project leader at mm -hmm. Croydon at some stage. Um, and then I moved to a, a small, a very small borough council and actually became head of IT. So I say it's been a slightly strange sort of route into project management. Um, yeah. But then, of course, I would maintain everybody manages projects. <laughs> yeah. Um, but in terms of formally taking on that mantle, um, I've probably only really consciously identified it with that when I moved into academia, which was, of course, much later, much further down the line. Yeah. Um, That's it. Yeah, because I, I, I remember the conversation um, that we had at Synergy, and it was really interesting, actually. Um, the, the, the thing that you said to me, which is that uh, I, I, I may have not remembered it exactly, but it was kind of when you were with a bunch of practitioners, like you were in, in synergy, you felt very much like an academic. But then when yes. you're when you're and but you said when when you're with your academic colleagues, you feel very much like a practitioner. To me, it sounded like you did. You didn't feel like you fitted in in, in either situation perfectly. But then, probably, uh, from my perspective, that that um, ability to be able to give a different lens onto the same subject is is a fantastic mm. uh, tool to have. Well, th well thank you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, yes, I still very. I mean, I, I think for a very long time I felt as though I've had a, a foot in each camp. I think at some point in my career, um, one of my managers described me as sort of, I was very, always very good at playing devil's advocate, which of course is the critical thinking skill that, yeah. uh, that you need for sort of academic work. Um, and of course that's what project managers, I would argue that's what project managers do. They should be um, challenging the status quo and asking those difficult questions. And, yeah. yes, Being the voice yes. of reason. Yes, and being able to take that holistic view as well, but occasionally getting involved in the detail. But yes, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it is. So, mm. listening to that, obviously your your career sounds, uh, and maybe that's up to that point at Croydon. Uh, a lot of it's been in in that um, uh, government, local government type things. Have you? What other industries have you worked in? Have you focused most of your energies into that kind of industry? Um, after I say I went and became a head of an IT department in a small um, borough council. Um, after that, I wouldn't say I'd had enough of um, local government at all because it was always fascinating because there were so many different things and different mm. types of activity yeah. going on. And I can't remember exactly why now, but I then moved into financial services. Oh, right. I went, went to work for a company that was taken over. So I don't suppose uh, many people will have heard of it now. It was Hill Samuel. Um, it was taken over by TSB in the time I was there. Right. Um, which, oh gosh, there, there are lots of stories I could tell um, relating to that time. But I think I was there probably for three or four years. Um, a lot of, obviously, the systems were all financial systems. Yeah. So didn't really, uh, I don't want to say I got bored because I never get, I, I think I, I, I cannot imagine ever being bored, but 
I think, and th at the time, it was, we were being taken over by, by um, TSB, and that was some very challenging times. As a precursor to that, I'm not sure whether there was any connection, because I wasn't, wasn't involved in the politics at the time, um, but we had some consultants in. They were, I think at the time, they, they were the Boston Consulting Group, and I think they were actually being taken over as well at the time they were working with us. <laughs> um, but I learned a lot about change management working with them. Mm -hmm. And I can remember at that time, I very much had the view that projects were about change, or I developed that view. Um, yeah. And I developed some of the tools and techniques around change management and using those and saw how tremendously powerful that was. Um, but at that time, certainly within an information technology department, when I, I can remember saying to my, so making some comment about uh, managing change, and um, certainly the somebody quite sort of senior senior manager saying well we we don't manage change we just deliver computer systems and i'm thinking what <laughs> <laughs> that really didn't make any sense to me um because i thought well, if you don't change the business and don't actually engage with that change then what are we doing Com yeah. computer systems aren't an end in themselves they're a means to an end um, yeah and i think that's some, no, sorry, sorry go on. Go on. no you know you go on no, go on um, you know, I was going to say, and I think that was where the consultants were coming from. That maybe was their influence starting to rub off on me. Um, in the, yeah, we, we did, we, we couldn't just create computer systems. They weren't only consulting in the IT area, they were consulting strategically within the organization. Of course, um, yeah. And um, uncovering, um, what's the word, certain information that was uh, challenging some of the strategic views that had been held in, within the organization. Um, and so clearly the, that, that then in turn obviously led to challenges for the computer systems that were, were being developed. Um, I mean, pretty much most, well, certainly most of the time I was there, I think we were working on a huge system um, that had really delivered very little in, in value. Um, up until that point, it was sort of, we were heading for a sort of a big bang. We were gonna, it was going to be this fantastic all singing, all dancing system. And it would... Um, solve all the company's problems but of course that's also where i got and i think there's obviously been a lot of research on this since that um a the world changes you can't sort of just tuck yourselves away for sort of three or five years to work on a system because the world will have changed by the time you come out of yeah. that but this idea of chunking things up and quick win quick, quick wins has been a, a phrase that keeps cropping up in my my history looking for those quick wins and trying to test ideas out for example before you actually uh, build a computer system around behavioral change that you don't even know if it'll work um that always seemed to me to be much more about um, developing a computer system than just the techie bit there was always the people side of it to think about and the way computer technology had evolved um, people weren't necessarily joining all those dots up we for, for many many years we were looking at well how do you actually improve the front end of projects so I can remember working with some consultants who were very focused on business analysis and how you actually did that to ensure that projects were better defined at the beginning um, and they, again, we, I learned a lot, a lot of techniques from them. So I had lots of time, mostly while, well, no, both, both working in financial services and with them um, in local government, working alongside consultants. And I was um, sort of a sponge for new ideas, new techniques, new tools, new thinking. So I always used to get on very well with the consultants um, and look to exploit those ideas in all sorts of ways across the organization. Um, and that was both exciting for me and I think, I mean, it was certainly challenging sometimes. I'm sure some of the people that have managed me in my career probably um, 
um, was certainly challenged to uh, to think differently. Um, and it's uh, anyway, I would like to think so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I, I think the thing is, you know, it's it's it. I, I got. I was talking to someone. Um, a few, a few months back now around and a question that they posed to me about whether I think that um, change management um, uh, is is something that should be done by a different person to project management and I kind of for me whilst change management as traditionally seen as the business changes is, is kind of that's how I seem to think it is is termed is about making changes to the business and project management people see that as being say the IT implementation or an engineering role or, or generally something like that is where they mm -hmm. see that's where you do the project management and then the change management where you do that people side of it and I, I and my mind I see it as one it's just a different part of the spectrum of that project management skill set and I yeah, just see I'm totally, I'm totally with you on that. Yeah. 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 It's, it's kind of, if you are making a change now, it may not, what you may do is chunk it up into different individuals fulfilling those roles, but making the change may include an IT project that is very scoped on just that IT project, but they have, it has to be cognizant of the, the reason why you're doing a business case there and understand it. And actually there does, sometimes it can get, and I've worked for um, end, end consuming organizations. I've worked for um, consulting and system integrators. I've worked for vendors that are, are uh, consulting for the vendors as well. So I've kind of been poacher, gamekeeper, all of them in, mm, in a lot of different yeah. roles. And, but and it, it depends where you are in the in the not hierarchy is the wrong word, but in the, the portion of the um, of the project um, depends on the, the I've seen anyway is the mindset there where people will go well I just do this bit I do and uh, but I still think as project management is as a big as the big thing it's got to cover change management as well it's the the tools to make change happen and if you only ever focus on that that project delivery and the project processes and things like that and not the the people who influence and that stakeholder management side of it which is amazingly fundamental i think um you you end up failing as you say locking yourself away and just delivering what someone asked you to do without sitting there as a project manager going hang on a minute you've asked us to create this thing for cryptocurrency here and there's a new cryptocurrency over just appeared that this one's mm -hmm. away now and may not be your job to make that decision kind of raising and being aware of why things might change what you're doing is is i think it's critical as the job and if you don't do it you kind of um, you kind of delegating some of the responsibility to someone else to do that on your behalf which to me doesn't feel right delivering a project that is of no value to the organization you're working for what's the point of that yeah, I mean, they seem to be two horses that have to be harnessed together. Um, this, this may be heresy to your project management um, listeners. Um, I know there is a bit of a, a sort of a tussle going on in certainly in terms of the academic discipline between change management and project management. Um, I'm personally can't get excited really whether we view change management as part of project management or project management as part of change management. The two things need to be harnessed together for the well, ultimately, I would say not just the benefit of one organisation, but for the benefit of society as a whole. Yeah. Um, 
So we're certainly on the same page there, Nigel. That's yeah. <laughs> nice to hear. Yeah, that's good. I think it's you kind of sit there and go, well, is it management of change, change management, project, project management, managing projects and change, swapping them all around? Um, and I, and I can't, you kind of go, it doesn't matter. It's realisation mm -hmm. of the benefits for your organisation. Yeah, that's yes, what you're doing. Yeah, and, and the two them, them things have got to do it. Yeah, you'd have to go down to the level probably of individual tools and techniques within each of those two areas to decide, well, actually, this is a, uh, to, to, to resolve that. Mm. Um, and I, I think you, and as with any sort of toolkit, you, you can use a, use a set of tools to, to achieve an objective. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's about positioning that objective within the bigger picture. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I agree. Hi, it's Nigel here. Sorry to interrupt the uh, interview, and I'll get you back to it very shortly. It's just a reminder that to make sure that you get to hear to these wonderful interviewees and their stories, to click your subscribe button, and then you'll get them into your podcatcher every month as soon as they come out. Anyway, back to the interview. Thinking about, um, obviously you went from TSB, and I'm, I'm guessing you moved down then to, uh, not TSB, sorry, the the um, uh, the financial services company and then moved on to, to something and what, what was it that your next step then um, if i remember correctly i think i had about that was when i had about eight or nine months probably working for myself um i mean i several consultancies that i had worked with would quite have liked to recruit me but i just couldn't really um, reconcile the idea of living out of a suitcase with family life i mean i had a had a husband had mostly dogs in the past, um, not children at that point. But I just never fancied that idea of just constantly traveling and being in different places. And um, I suppose I've got a strong sort of homing instinct. Uh, so that never appealed. Um, but I did sort of flirt with the idea and did do some individual consultancy assignments for about eight or nine months. And then I saw an opportunity for a, it was a contract again, um, but it was for back, back at the London Borough of Croydon for a strategy consultant in information systems and technology uh, for a two-year fixed-term contract. And timing-wise, that just seemed to be absolutely perfect for me at the time. Um, it enabled me to bring my change management skills and to apply some of that thinking is exactly what we've just been talking about with the project management, with the background in information systems and technology and how that was starting to open up the potential for dramatic change in society. Um, and also the two year suited me very well because by then I was, um, must've been 33. And I realized if I didn't sort of start a family in about two years time, it was probably gonna be too late. So it sort of fitted with, family and um, my sort of personal um, agenda so I went back to Croydon um, which at the time I remember thinking well that'll look quite good on the CV going back to somewhere where you used to work <laughs> on a contract which was very nice um, the challenge when I got there was that I can't remember how many departments there were but there's probably typically 10 or 12 departments in a big local council um, although they've all been reorganized now and uh, I know they tended to go for much bigger bigger and a smaller number of departments but at that time there were probably 10 or 12 departments and I think we had a team of three and a half of us to do strategy for the whole of the council so and I think I actually pitched this at the presentation that was part of the recruitment process for this consultancy and um, post for I said, two, two years um, that actually it wouldn't be possible for either me as one person or even three and a half people to actually 
develop and fully implement and engage 12 departments with a new strategy and I also had this fear of strategy documents being written and then put on the shelf mm, and yeah. forgotten so the idea that I pitched to them was that we would recruit people in the departments we would work with them to facilitate the development of information systems and technology strategies for all the departments and then they would sort of um, I mean it's a classic consulting role in that we wouldn't build dependency on us we would gradually develop their capabilities to take ownership themselves yeah. and for some reason they seemed to like that idea and I was recruited and stayed there for two years um, in fact during that time again I, I don't know whether you remember but local government was going through a big outsourcing many local councils were going through an outsourcing exercise where they were selling off um, selling off the right term probably not outsourcing um, their IT um, and a major firm, they were negotiating with a major firm to start providing their IT for them. Um, they knew mine was, only, mine was only, ever, only ever a two year contract, so there was no obligation on them to do so, but they actually made my po post that was, that was the contract a permanent post at that point in time. Oh, right. um, a lot of the IT people did go to the, transfer to the new company, um, but I was sort of like amazed at <laughs> this fantastic sort of, um, position I said I'd been made permanent so I then um, happily fell pregnant but I got a full maternity deal that I wasn't expecting at all oh, right. um, and I just thought I was so lucky they also knew by then we'd made plans to move to Dorset because my parents had retired down here and we wanted to move away from London to bring up a family so they knew I wasn't going to be coming back after having um, having a family but I still got um, full maternity uh, deal um, in those days it probably wasn't as generous as it is, as it is now um, but nevertheless I was absolutely delighted um, we bought the house down here and I still spent um, a few days a week up in Croydon and sort of finished my contract and it probably was at about the two-year mark uh, we moved down here and we started the family mm. um, I and that was all so that that's probably about the most planning I've ever done around my, my <laughs> life and my circumstances um, was I planned to be in the position where financially I could afford not to work if I felt I didn't want to because my mother when she'd um, had myself and my sister um, she hadn't worked until my sister went back to went to school or started school so she was um, she sort of stayed at home looking looking after us um, I'm sure she was very very busy certainly when she retired she became even more busy than when she was working um, but I certainly I didn't want to have any preconceived ideas I was starting a family at 35 I didn't know how well, I was sure it would be challenging I didn't know how challenge exactly how challenging it would be and I wanted to keep the option open that I could um, be a stay-at-home mum if that's what turned out to suit me I was going to put the, put the children and my own needs first for, yeah. for, um, for once um, so yeah so we we moved to Dorset um, into what at that time was a two-bedroom bungalow that we had plans to convert to a five-bedroom chalet bungalow so yeah um, so we moved in here actually when I went off to have into the hospital to have my daughter um, the builders came in and took over and by the time I'd had my daughter, um, clearly the house was a building site and it wasn't possible for me to come back with a baby. So I actually went to stay, stay with my mum for, oh, I think I think I was told it would be no more than two weeks. I think it turned into three months. <laughs> um, it took that long to get the house sort of straightened out enough for it to be safe. Because there was so much dust everywhere, you couldn't have brought a baby into, into the house. Yeah, yeah. We, um, had, we had um, a load of building work done 
um, before we had our first. Um, mm. And it was uh, it, such a long time. You still have dust settling, don't you? Yes. For yes. months on end afterwards. Yes. And you're just sitting there going, when is this going to stop settling? <laughs> <laughs> Yes, anyway, yes, so I think, I, I mean, I, as I mentioned um, recently at my mum's funeral, I cannot imagine bringing up children without having your parents close by, and I know not everybody, mm. probably these days, even less people are fortunate enough to have that, so I do consider myself very fortunate to have had that opportunity. Um, I would not have wanted to bring children up, either living as close to London as we did, um, or without my parents being being close by because they were both fantastic. Um, the children never had to go to childminders. They were always um, willing childminders, loved having the grandchildren around. Um, and I think I lasted about three months and then I took on a part-time job. <laughs> <laughs> um, but actually it was clerk to a local parish council, mm -hmm. so which was actually part voluntary and only very partly paid. Um, but it was just, it sort of just got me out of just being at home with the children um, or with my one, one child at that time. Um, so it was something a bit different, but it, it then meant I'd covered the full spectrum of local authorities. I'd worked in a very, <laughs> for a very small parish council. I'd worked for a borough, small borough council and then a large London borough. Um, so I had the, the full range of experience there. Um, and then actually when I was expecting, oh, sorry, there's a little bit of the story I've missed out, which was that in 1990, I actually applied for a job down here at Bournemouth University. Right. Only it was, then it was Bournemouth Polytechnic. Um, and I was actually offered the job in about the March time, I think it was. And uh, it was a time when the housing market subsequently crashed. Uh. And we were living up in Croydon. And I had this job offer. And indeed, I undertook some projects and some work with some of the people at Bournemouth um, Polytechnic at the time. But unfortunately, it got to August time and we still hadn't managed to sell our house in Croydon. And although I was... I think by then quite keen on a, an academic, um, taking on an academic role. Um, I didn't want to commit indefinitely to a hundred mile commute. No. Um, I could have, uh, if we'd sold the house, I could have done it for a few months, but um, I didn't want to do it for, I'll say for, for an unknown period of time. Um, so I had to turn the job down and didn't end up joining a, so what very rapidly became Bournemouth University at that time. Um, but when I did move down here, eventually I did get on the phone. And in fact, somebody who I'd done some work with, and he was actually recruited at the same time I had been offered the job. Um, he by then was head of department. And uh, I said, oh, hi, Tony, I've finally moved down here, finally made it down. So he invited me over and we had lunch and he took me on a tour of the campus that was growing rapidly at that point because they'd become a university and were spending money on new buildings. Mm -hmm. um, and then it wasn't probably for another year when I was actually expecting my second child that he phoned me up and said, uh, could you come and take a course for us? And I said, when does it start? And he said, uh, last week. <laughs> so it was in at the deep end. <laughs> And that's so why I started work for the university, just teaching one course, uh, I think it was one evening a week, I think. Um, and it was drawing on my database experience. It was teaching database and um, database design and data analysis and that sort of thing. So very much the techie, uh, yeah. techie side of my previous, uh, previous job. Um, wow. Anyway, so yeah, so 
my son came to, to came to my first exam board and his when he was 17 days old <laughs> um, and really it just sort of gradually built up from there I gradually went from sort of a couple of hours a week up to half time by the time when did I go to I think by about 2005 I was on a 0.5 contract um, and part of what I'd been doing at that time was working on because I was with a tech background in technology um, I was very keen to see technology come into higher education and to, into teaching and first to be able to use it to um, to help students learn and we were working on what I think was the first fully online business and management course it was actually a collaboration with several universities and the army um, mm -hmm. the army's interest was for people who were um, they could be serving in any any part of the world, but who were preparing to leave the army to come back into civilian life and giving them a business and management. Then it was just a foundation degree we were looking at. So we were working to design a, an on, a purely online foundation degree in business and management. So I'd been involved in that right from the beginning. Um, I think by then I must have been teaching project management because it was certainly the project management units that I designed on that course with, with a colleague. Um, yeah, so it got to about 2005, I think it was, and the person that was leading that course was leaving, and they thought I would be the obvious candidate to take it on. Um, and and they, when we actually looked at my workload, I was doing as much teaching as most of the full-time staff. So they converted my half-time post to a full-time post, and I took on the management role of the, the course. And that's how I became a full-time academic, <laughs> mm. a somewhat circuitous route. As I think many of us do in many of our jobs these days. Mm. So mm. just the, going back into your um, project management sort of uh, life, uh, sort of life cycle, when, when would you say, as you say, you never really got that project management title that you were would normally quite often associate it but you're obviously doing the role well when do you think would have been the first time you you consider that you did your first project oh gosh it probably was those systems we were developing for say some of the early business type systems to go on pcs I think before that, I had very much been doing either the programming or the data analysis. Mm -hmm. um, but I think those were sort of complete self-contained projects in their own right. So I think leading those was when I would say I was actually being a project manager. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, 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 it's funny. It's quite often you sit there and go, well, what, what did, when was it that I was, because quite a few of us have gone through that role of, I was, you're in a bit of a techie role you're doing a bit of day or you're doing a business analyst role and then you kind of sit there going hang on i'm i'm oh it's my fault if this goes wrong <laughs> and that's kind of how I, I kind of that that dawns on you sometimes doesn't it yes yes yeah. so off off the back of that what would you say was the largest piece of work or largest project that you've managed and um when i say largest i don't it's 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 what felt the largest to you not so not the biggest value the biggest number of people influenced or the biggest amount of stuff moved or whatever or done or what or lines of code or whatever it's kind of what if you if you just first one that pops in your head think well that was a big one that was the biggest well tell us about that <laughs> Well, I'm really glad you've added those caveats so I don't have to think about budget or number of no, people. No. 
because by far the biggest project I've ever undertaken was my PhD. <laughs> <laughs> because that took me seven years, which is the sort of, I'm not even sure recommended is the, um, the right expression, the, the allowed time for a part-time PhD. Right. <laughs> Full-time, it's normally, normally three and a half years-ish. When you get funding for one, it typically is for three years and then you have to write up. Um, but I took the, I say the full seven years. Um, I know plenty of people that have embarked on part-time PhDs and either never finished or certainly taken a lot longer. So I am quite proud of the fact that I finished in seven years doing it alongside a full-time job. Um, because contrary to um, perhaps popular belief about academics, um, these days we're on sort of commercial contracts. We have to book leave like um, everybody else does. Uh, we don't get long holidays. The only time the university is actually closed is the gap between Christmas and New Year. Mm -hmm. Every other time there is plenty of activity going on. Um, I mean, over the summer, when some academics managed who aren't in like course leading roles or even unit leading roles will be doing their research those of us that are leading things there's still a lot of management activity going on we might be um, still marking or um, preparing for the well even i mean all academics will be preparing for the upcoming year uh, we might be marking resits where students have had to resubmit work so there is it's always very very busy there's never a good time to take holiday um, and there's never a good time to fit in actually sitting down and doing some writing for a phd um, but certainly that was the biggest in terms of time it was probably biggest in terms of mental commitment from me um, I mean, I'll be perfectly honest and say I probably faffed around for the first couple, two or three years. And until I, one thing it did teach me was to learn to say no. Until I learned to say no, I wasn't really making much progress. It was only when I absolutely had to start saying no to things I very much wanted to get involved in, but I just knew I just had to get that PhD finished and that required dedicated attention and time. And I had to cut out everything that wasn't, yeah. and if everything else that wasn't absolutely essential um obviously i was still teaching i was still delivering to the students and still managing programs but everything that wasn't essential to those core functions i had to cut out in order to get that phd done um so it was a, a big commitment for me um and yeah and probably one of my proudest achievements as well excellent at the, at the bit i didn't say at the beginning what did you learn but obviously you just by doing a PhD, you're learning lots anyway, aren't you? So there you go. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. I mean, it's described as your training as a researcher. Yeah. So it almost doesn't matter what you find out. What you're trying to do is demonstrate that you know how to do good research. Um, but as I say, the, probably one of the single most important things I learned was to say no, <laughs> no to other things, no to yeah. other distractions. All um, about focus, isn't it there? Yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. So think, think about Sorry, go on. Go on. No, no, you go on. Well, I was just going to say, and it might sound like it was, that was just a, pro a project of one person, but actually it isn't because you've got a whole range of stakeholders you're engaging with. Um, obviously, you've got one, two, or, no, not, never one, two or three supervisors. Um, in my case, one of my supervisors, well, they both were retired, actually, by the time I actually started my PhD. Um, I did get my dream team. I got the people I wanted. Um, but they were, had both... No, no, actually, it's not quite true. Actually, no, one, hadn't, one had retired, one hadn't. Um, the one that hadn't retired did retire during my PhD, and actually, it was near enough to the end that we didn't, uh, didn't seek a replacement because 
when many people who course, do PhDs when they're much, much younger, um, you, their supervisors are telling them to oh, go to lots of conferences, read more widely and so forth. With me, I think because I'd had such a long career and was already very active in the learning and teaching area around how you learn and teach project management. Um, their advice kept being, no, stop going to conferences, stop talking to other people, just get on and write the PhD up, Karen. <laughs> um, so you have lots of stakeholders you are engaging with, so your participants, people you're, you're um, collecting data from, um, the ethics committee, for example, I had a, quite a tough time getting through ethic, getting ethic, ethical approval for what I was doing. Um, and then there's all the stakeholders within the university, your, your line manager and all the other people you have to keep on side. So although people say so your listeners may think, oh, well, that was a very sort of single person project. Actually, it's not. <laughs> there's a yeah. lot of stakeholders to engage with. Yeah. And you're using all, all of that capability and tooling that you would do on, on, on a different type of project as well, wouldn't you? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I did eventually have to create a plan. <laughs> but when you get to the, about the halfway point, you have to produce a document that's called, well, in my time, I think they've done away with it now, but it was called the transfer document. So you're trying to demonstrate that you actually can, can, can get there. It is worth doing and it is going to be PhD worthy. And at that point, I actually, actually had to draw a Gantt chart. <laughs> uh, it's not a project unless someone puts a Gantt chart in front of me. As far yeah, as absolutely. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> So, so thinking about some of the other projects um, you've got there that, that you worked on, what, what would you say was your biggest screw up on a project? And again, what did you learn from that screw up? Well, my biggest screw up wasn't probably really about project management. It was just having an ambition to be a manager too young. So what I'm have probably the most, I wouldn't, I'm not sure I would use the word a screw up, but what I have the most regrets about was stepping into a management role in my twenties where I actually had staff to line manage. And I was far too, I'll be honest, I was far too young to be doing that. Um, I don't think I did an awful job, but I relied on other people in particular, the HR department to do more than, they, then it, it subsequently became apparent that then they were going to do. Um, mm. So I do feel I had a negative effect on some people and I very much regret that. Um, yeah, so that's, that's my big admission for the evening. <laughs> that's fair enough. But I think, I think it is, as, as a junior manager, when you go into roles, you do um, kind of think the role of HR is, is something different to what it really is in an organization mm -hmm. because the role of HR isn't the the protector of the people it's the protector of the organization first and supporter of yes. the people second isn't it and I think that's the yes. thing that a lot of yeah. us go there kind of think of it in a different way around and a different focus and their priorities yes. and that, there's yeah. nothing wrong with those priorities um, uh, it's just a it is something you you don't learn until you learn it kind of thing it's quite difficult to get that that subtlety Yes, indeed, indeed. So, again, next question. Thinking about your um, uh, projects and things like that, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna put a. I don't often do this. You can't say your PhD. <laughs> um, uh, not on this one. But what is your proudest project delivery? So, of the projects that you've done, the businesses that you've worked with, or or the academic things as well. Um, excluding your own personal PhD, what would you say is your proudest mm. project delivery? Oh, 
gosh, that is a tricky one. Three things have popped into my head as you said that, and I'm not sure I'm allowed to say three. I've, I can't remember when you interviewed me before whether I mentioned about email. Did I mention about the big email system I took on? Do you remember? That does ring a bell, but I can't remember. Oh, uh, right. Maybe I have already talked about that. So I won't mention that It doesn't, it doesn't matter. It's gonna, this, this will be a little bit away from the other one, and not everyone will have listened to the other one. And if they have, fine. They can, you, might, you might tell a different story anyway. <laughs> <laughs> if that's the one that springs up. Yeah. Well, I suppose the things that are popping into my mind are the, those early PC projects. Mm. Um, and so the, the crematorium one, I still still think was, I, I, unfortunately, I can't remember any of the jokes or any of the specifics, mm. but I just remember it was, it was just a lot of fun working with the people down there. They were always so um, pleased to see us, so, um, so uh, well engaged with what we were trying to do and trying things out. And so that, that was quite a proud, well, maybe not proud, it's quite, perhaps not quite the right word, but certainly the, um, one of the highlights of my, uh, my career. Um, and I suppose the, the email project where um, the organisation had been, I think the IT department had actually had two or three goes at installing. And again, most of your listeners won't remember a time without email, but the, I, it I was do. back in those... Back in those, you can't be that old, Nigel. Back in yeah. those days, um, like the IT department had had two or three goes, and it really illustrates the point we were saying earlier about change management. They'd had two or three goes to implement an email system for the organisation, and it had just flopped disastrously each time. And I don't remember how I came to be involved, but I took this on, um, and I treated it as a change management project. I said, well, um, so who wants this? Okay, the chief executive. Okay, so who does he communicate with? Um, so I took his top team and we said, right, well, we'll start there. We'll email enable all of those people and we will make sure they, he drives his communication through there because they need to communicate with him. So they will come along whether they want to or not sort of thing. Um, and we rolled it out from there. So it was very much sort of flipping the almost forgetting about the technology because I think the, the IT department had probably started with the people that wanted it the most or the people that they were used to working with who are already the, um, the technical experts anyway. Um, but of course, without the rest of the organization actually using it, they weren't really able to communicate with each other because um, they weren't obviously each other weren't the only people they communicated with. So I very much took that top down. Let's drive it from the angle of communication and who needs to talk to each other. Um, and yeah, so that was that was a success. And of course, as I've just described, the uh, the whole thing about the strategy and actually taking a facilitation role rather than we'll create it and give it to you um, for each department. And I say my fear was always that a big document gets written and just put on the shelf. And I thought well, I'm not going to spend two years doing that. I would like to see some change here. Um, and I had a video I shared with. Um, so this must have been pre it must have been around 1990 because it was a video made by a large communications company and it was sort of a future visioning one i think with the turn of the um the millennia sort of in mind it was a future visioning thing and there were some scenarios one of which was a man on sitting on a beach with his laptop on his lap working away another one was showing I think paramedics in an ambulance in real time communication back with the hospital and the doctors. And I can't remember what the third one was now, but I sort of used that to really try and stimulate um, conversation about how technology could transform the way we worked. It wasn't just about automating what we already do. It was about doing things differently. So those are some of the highlights anyway. I said, if I had to pick a, um, 
the uh, the thing I'm most proud of. I say that would be really tough. <laughs> you can it is. Often that. <laughs> yeah, it is usually tough, but it's it's always an interesting conversation when it is. Mm. And I do emphasize mm. with the the view of the uh, the email and that technique. Sometimes um, uh, the the early adopters. As you say, you can get really keen early adopters in certain parts of the organization, but it won't necessarily spread to the rest of the, the organization. But I've seen mm. it with organizations where um, funnily, the hierarchical nature of it, um, if you start at the, the level where someone of influence has it and they are using it their with their team, then everyone wants to be in on that. And suddenly mm. you get lots and it can backfire because you get a lot of people banging on the door going i want it today i want it today i want it today yes and yeah, if, if yeah. you're doing a little proof of concept mm. rolling out something like that for a small group and you've scaled to just for the small group and it's kind of like ah oh, crap we've now got it we're kind of hung by our own success sort of thing mm -hmm. um so yeah so i can i can see how that can work and we'd reach the point i thought certainly uh, that, that general point is true. We'd reached the point where the IT department we had worked with the same people over and over again. And actually, if the organisation as a whole was going to move forward, you had to start taking everybody with you. Yeah, true, true. Yeah, I know what you mean. So, Karen, that's been a really. In, I've got a couple of closing questions to ask you now. It's been a really interesting. I'm not actually. What I'm not going to do, because as you say, we've had our other podcast interview where we talked about. Um, your book and, and your latest study of the responsible pro uh, the responsible project manager stuff and I urge people to go back and have a listen to that because um, we've delved deeply into that around how um, project management um, needs to look beyond the the time cost quality delivery and look beyond that to the to the greater impact we can have and what we are doing to the world and what we are doing to the uh, our fellow uh, uh, people on the world. So I do urge people to go back um, to that episode and have a listen to that because we delve quite deeply into that uh, responsible project management stuff. But on that, what, what was the last book, project management book that you read? Oh gosh. Well, Shirley has just lent me Become a Project Motivator. So that's the one I'm currently reading. Is that Ruth Pierce? Yes. 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 Great. Great yes. book. Great book. Mm -hmm. I haven't Ruth, got very far yet, but. <laughs> uh, really, really, really it's, re uh, yeah. it's a really nice. Um, uh, obviously, you will have been in, um, ex exposed and had a look at a lot of the things, the Belbin management techniques and all those sort of mm -hmm. things, all that, the, the plethora of items. And this is a, a slightly, that is a slightly different um, focus on those sort of things. And I, and I think uh, it's really interesting. I listened to it on Audible. Um, all right. Mm -hmm. it, was really, it was really good in Audible, actually, as well. I really enjoyed it. And uh, if, if you're interested, Ruth was... Uh, my second proper interview guest on the podcast last uh, February. So, oh, right. I shall have to listen to that one. Yeah, yes. So she, yeah. So yeah. she yeah, talks about that strength-based project management. Mm. Um, and so she has some interesting stories around how she uses it and she does in the book as well. So that's, yeah, really good book. You're, you're going to enjoy mm. that. Mm, um, what, what was the last project podcast that you listened to? Do you listen to podcasts? Not everyone does and yet. No, I don't, I'm afraid. No. I've got a very, very, I mean, I would love to be able to listen to them in the car, but my um, 
my, it's a very old car. The radio's just stopped working. <laughs> and if I put my phone on to play, it drains my, um, my data and my battery. So I've not quite managed to, I ought to, I really ought to, because it, it is something I, w- I would do probably far more than I would have time to sit and read books. Yeah. I probably would listen on the train or um, on well, flights that we're not, we're not doing at the moment. Um, yeah. Or... You need to get one of the. You need to get one of them Bluetooth speakers. You can hang on your, uh, on your. Um, yeah. Yes. Support, yeah. Uh, absolutely, I do. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Connect it all in and make sure you download the podcast before you go in the indeed. car. Then it saves you data. <laughs> yes, indeed. And of course, there are all yours that I really must listen to all of them. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, funnily enough, I highly recommend them. So there you go. So, <laughs> and it's not because of me. It's because of the, I've been so lucky to have some fantastic guests that have been on on the, on the show. So. Uh, yeah, that's it's good. So, um, do do you consume project blogs? And what was the last one you read no, that you remember? Not, if you do, not really. Um, again, I people often yeah, I often get distracted by things easily, and I can mm. I can see ways in, ways I can take ideas forward. Um, yeah, so I think I'm still in that uh, stay focused on the RPM stuff at the moment and yeah, don't get enough. any new ideas because you can only do so much in a day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's fair enough. That, drawing on your lesson that you talked about as yeah. part of your PhD to keep that focus. So, yeah, but I'm, I'm not a good advert for social media or some of this, all this stuff that I really ought to be. And I think this, this current chaos that we're in, I think will drive us all. And I'm sure that will include me down this route far more because we're not going to be able to go and meet people. We're going to have to do so much more online. Yeah, yeah, and and it, it is, and and I suppose for, for listeners, uh, in in ten years' time, if this is still knocking around in context, this is uh, just in the sort of outbreak of the coronavirus in in the UK, and there's quite a lot of change going on on this week in the middle of March here in 2020. Um, so it's um, yeah, some significant changes to society. Um, last two questions. First one to a project manager that's out there now that is uh, died in the wool been in the job for quite some time um what top tip would you give that person? now i was ex- i was expecting this one and i have given it some thought um because i there are lots of ideas i had but i think <laughs> what i must come down on is the fact that words is it, i'm quoting i don't know who originally said it but it's from something again a session i went to fairly recently words make worlds take and what we need to do in project management is take control of the narrative of projects and advocate for beneficial change um and connected with that of course is the asking difficult questions mm. um, raising and resolving the issues etc um, but this idea of the narrative i mean we've seen it with some of the biggest projects that we're facing in this country at the moment i'm thinking particularly of hs2 Mm. um but i'm sure there are there are several others that are in the media where the media is controlling the narrative and i think this idea that i mean project managers are very good at communicating outwards from their projects about the benefits of their projects about what's happening next about all of that stuff but actually taking the control of the narrative in terms of 
the full story and managing that. I mean, we saw the Garden Bridge project that I think we'll say it's been argued was the first project to be killed by, by social media. Um, project managers are going to have to become different people. Um, whether or not you sign up to the responsible line or not, I think if we're going to actually get projects done, um, they are going to be increasingly exposed to um, pressures from people we hadn't even thought of as stakeholders. Yeah. Um, so I think getting hold of that now, controlling that narrative. So my top tip for experienced project managers would be to recognize the power of words, the words they use all the time about their projects. Um, words make worlds and you need to start shaping the worlds of all the stakeholders on your projects in a way that actually is going to facilitate delivering a successful project. Otherwise, it's just going to be a battle. Yeah. yeah so take sense. control of the narrative. That's a yeah. great tip. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're, it's, it, it is where um, I quite often see that, uh, and maybe on a smaller scale on the progress type of it, you will have conversations that are coming in from uh, a management layer to, to through that down another couple of layers to you saying, right, why the hell are you struggling with this project? And you're thinking, well, we're not, we're doing okay. We've got loads of progress. Here's all the details. And you realize that at that point you've lost the control of the story somewhere and somebody. Yes. Yeah. So, so somewhere you're not getting it to some of those stakeholders, including the people, your, your manager directly above you in order for mm. them to go, hang on a minute. No, that's, that's not true. Um, and then you start going, right. Okay. What do we do about it? How do we change that communication and think about that conversation that we, we need to have and, and to what level we need to sometimes jump uh, jump uh, and, and maybe rattle a few cages and put out some noses to be able to get, make sure the information gets to the right place. Yes, and I suppose when I say take control of the narrative, I don't just mean shout louder or more frequently. I mean actually start, and again, this is an expression I got from some of the consultants I worked with years ago, address the whiffims, the what's in it for me. Yeah, yeah. So you yeah. have to make the conversation about what the other person is interested in, not what you think they should be interested in. Yeah, yeah. And, and the only way to do that is understand the person that you're trying to talk to and putting yourself yes. in the shoes, isn't it? Yes, yeah. It's, it's, it's fundamental because as the, sometimes you'll sit there and think, hang on a minute, why, why are they making noise about that? And then you realise mm. actually mm. all the things and all the things you're talking about, they don't give a damn about. Whilst yeah. you have the information about what they care about, you're not telling them. And if you start telling them about that information, then they start feeling a bit warmer and fuzzier about it. Mm. Mm. So final question, um, if we look back to those first projects and, and uh, fresh faced Karen is there uh, <laughs> starting what is her first project as far as she knew, um, what would be that one um, thing that you'd say to your, your younger self? Again, I think I, I think this must have been on the list of questions you gave me because I anticipated this one. And I think I'm with your, hopefully with your permission, I'm going to do a little bit of um, bending of time here, mainly because the world is so different today. Um, and I don't know what top tip I could have given myself because I, 
it would it, there's always the risk that you would actually change what happens in your life and yeah, yeah, I wouldn't yeah. end up where I am yeah. today yeah. so I sort of so, so you reframed. don't have to go back in a DeLorean and actually no, do it indeed. That's, that's fine, so I, yeah so I came up with a top tip for a new project manager whether that's me today or maybe one of my children who knows um and that was going to be around doing your homework but equally don't be afraid to ask or to say you don't know don't second guess if something isn't clear um so i I wouldn't go so far as to say um there are no such thing as i know some people say there's no such thing as a dumb question well if you haven't done that your homework there might be um so do your homework but then don't be afraid if something isn't clear don't be afraid to say it's not clear And that, that comes back to the, we all have our different um, perspectives. No two people have the same perspective. So it's always worth clarifying. If, if you think there's a, and well, even if you don't think there's any, any element of doubt, it's still worth verifying that your view is, is what the other person's um, trying to convey. So, Absolutely. I think yeah. sometimes I, I, I found it where I have made, when you do that thing of going, oh, just hang on a minute, let me just double check. I understand that mm. you and me are talking about the same thing. And then you get to the end of it and they go, no, that's not what I'm on about. And then you go, yeah. oh, right, okay. Yeah. Then you, could, exactly. you saved a lot of hassle for both of you there, haven't you? Yeah, absolutely. It happens so much. And quite yeah. often I'm in a situation where you can see two people have clearly, they're on different wavelengths. Yeah. And you just have to jump in and say, hang on a minute, you guys, you actually don't mean that. You don't mean that. Let's get things straight here. <laughs> well, it can be as simple as the language or it can be yeah. more about motivations. Yeah, yeah I've had, had that before. The, the language is one that is quite often the way someone will be using certain language and actually meaning the absolute opposite to what the other person is saying so jumping in there and going right just i'm confused can you can can i just clarify my meaning and then you it doesn't matter which one you choose to clarify the other one will go no 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 that's not what i mean and then immediately you can get that you can join them up then onto that line yes yes so that 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 is the grilling done i've um taken up a large amount of your time which i'm really grateful for karen um, well, it's been delightful to take a trip down memory lane and to um, share some of my uh, fairly core values and ideas that um, we seem to be on the same wavelength on. <laughs> Either that or you're a very, very good host. <laughs> I'm, I, I, <laughs> which I'm sure you are, which you are. <laughs> I, 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 bullshit is my middle name. No. Um. <laughs> <laughs> not at all, not at all. <laughs> so if people want to get in touch with you, find out about your courses, find out about... Um, uh, find out about the responsible project management stuff other than going back and listening to the previous podcast that we've done all about it. What's the best way of getting hold of you? Um, I can give you my, give people my email. I mean, I'm fairly easy to look up on the Bournemouth University website. My email there is kthompson. There's no full stop anywhere in that. Um, kthompson at bournemouth.ac.uk. Alternatively, if you go to the Responsible Project Management website that we are in the process of um, giving a a facelift to at the moment. Um, But if you go there, that's www.responsiblepm.com. There'll be links there to get in touch with us through that. Okay. So all all it leaves me to say is thank you again, Karen, and um, have a wonderful evening. Thank you very much um, indeed, Nigel. And uh, to you and all your listeners, stay safe. And I hope we can ride out this uh, present crisis. Yeah, me too. Me too. Thank you. Many thanks to Karen for her time. Um, I hope you all found that an interesting and fascinating journey that Karen had into 
uh, into the project arena and, and then onward into her academic career. Um, and if you've not had a chance to have a listen to the previous conversation Karen and I had about responsible project management, I do urge you to listen to it. Um, it is fast, uh, a fascinating arena around how I think the, the priorities of project management are, are, are inevitably going to change. Um, so uh, grab a download of that and have a listen. Um, as I said before, if you know anyone who wants to come on the show, Get them to get in touch. Sunday lunch PM pod at nigelcreaser.com. Um, if you've got any questions, comments, um, use the same address or um, or catch hold of me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, etc., uh, or LinkedIn. Um, the Twitter, Facebook, Instagram handles is Sunday lunch PM. And if you just search for Nigel Creaser on LinkedIn, you will find me. I'm open to connecting with people. So um let's connect and, and continue conversations and if you'd like to support the show you can do um the uh, the easiest way um is share with your friends and colleagues and um then maybe pop along give me a five-star review on wherever you listen to it um uh, or review whatever that is um you could grab a free copy of one of my books I'm uh, sorry, a free copy of my book when I were a project manager um, and or pop along to Amazon and get a copy of the other book, Project Management, The Sketches. Um, uh, support the show at Patreon, Patreon, uh, Patreon slash Sunday Lunch PM. But more importantly, um, it'd be great if you join me next time. Um, click the subscribe button and the notification buttons, as they all say on their, their YouTube channels. Um and then uh, you, you won't miss an episode. Um, like I say, I've got a couple of great interviews coming uh, in the Saturday uh, brunch arena. And I've got some what I think will be very fascinating um, Sunday lunch interviews as well um, over the coming months. So don't miss them. So all it leaves me to say really is um, stay safe, everyone. Um, look after yourself. Look after your family. And I hope... Uh, um, you're all well. Uh, but remember, project management is funny. Well, it's goodbye from me, Nigel Creaser, and it's goodbye from him, the Sunday Lunch PM. Goodbye.